Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Mark Chandler. Bannock Byrne, Global Foreign Exchange Chief Market Strategist and Managing Partner. He joins us now. What did you think about that, Mark? Really decent GDP print. And then there are reasons beneath the surface to be sceptical about it continuing through the year. But just the negativity surrounding a better than expected GDP figure in the United States. Yeah, so I, I was blown away by it too. You know, my back of the envelope calculation was closer to 2%. The street was a little bit above there. Uh, the number came like blew, blew away expectations. But a lot of it, like you say, is due to things that don't look like recurring things, like inventory growth, which likely will take off from production going forward. But in general, I think the important thing for me is just that how the U.S. GDP is going to compare to what we're going to get later this week from the Eurozone. Uh, tomorrow we get Italy's GDP. GDP. I know that the streets looking for a, and the government's looking for a 0.1% increase. I think that's being optimistic. We're talking about an economy that's barely grown. Uh, it really stagnated, contracted in the second half of last year. So for me, it's not just that the GDP number wasn't quite as good as what it looked like on the optics, but that comparatively, the U.S. still looks like the driest towel. So the median estimate for the Eurozone GDP figure that comes out tomorrow is 1.1% year on year. How close are we to stall speed? I caught up with Mohamed Alarian last week, who basically said we could be pretty close to stall speed in the Eurozone. What are your thoughts on that, Mark? Yeah, so I think that the, the problem is that when we, you know, just like the U.S. GDP numbers, this time to calculate, the, the government always doesn't have complete data when they make the f- preliminary forecast. This time, because the government shut down, the data was even more incomplete than usual. Same thing in the Eurozone. Here's what we're going to get. Tomorrow, we're going to get Italy, uh, Spain report, and I think France reports on Wednesday. And then the Eurozone reports. Germany, the biggest economy in the Eurozone, doesn't report till the middle of the month. And so I think that the German economy is where really at stall speed. Uh, Spain is going to grow like 2.5%. Their election this weekend had very little to do about the economy, much more to do about the Catalonian uh, secessionist movement. Yeah. So there's reasons to be calm if you're on the Federal Reserve at the moment. Inflation is softer than expected. GDP is better than expected. There's no reason to rush away with a move either way. But when you look abroad, that weakness abroad, how does that play into that news conference with Chairman Powell this Wednesday? Well, so I think that what people are looking, they're looking at like the 10-year U.S. yield, and they see it closing last week below 250. And they say, what is this telling us about the economy? And I say, it's not really telling us anything about the economy. It depends yeah. on what you ask it. And I think if you ask it properly, it's telling mm-hmm. us that Germany and Japan have negative yields. And it makes the U.S. yields more attractive. Not so much that foreigners are rushing to buy U.S. treasuries, but Americans, we are keeping our money at home. Well, that, that's what we heard last week. And this goes to your expertise in, in foreign exchange. Is it about dollar stable, dollar stronger? Or is it about euro weaker? Yeah, so right now... It's asymmetric. It's asymmetric. I think that's primarily a case of euro weakness now. Uh, I think that uh, we've seen uh, dollar-yen stabilize around, uh, say, 111, 112. I think it's primarily now uh, Europe as the weak sister here, uh, struggling to sustain growth, struggling to have higher inflation. But I'm thinking that the the worst of Europe is behind us, uh, that Germany is beginning to recover, that the, re- the recovery in China is going to help Germany. Uh, look, here's what I think strikes me, as a lot of people are forgetting. The German manufacturing sector has been shocked by China, Turkey, right, right. zone problems. But what's good about Germany right now, its service sector is at four-month highs, according to the uh, Z- the IFO survey, <coughs> it's like six-month highs on the PMI. Okay, but, but the U.S. GDP that John led with if you take out the external dynamics, net exports, you know, inventory noise, 
the domestic final sales of the American economy wasn't so hot, and we saw the yield come in with a vengeance. Right, exactly. So I think that uh, when you look at that uh, sort of final purchases by domestic uh, private sector, to exclude the government too, you're looking at about 1.3% growth, the lowest in about four or five years. But I think to, to your point, John, is that I think that uh, other things will make up for it. The consumer will bounce back a little bit in the second quarter with the with a relatively firm employment market that we'll get another update on this week. I think that the U.S. economy doesn't look all that bad of shape, and I think we should expect something around trend growth this year. Reason to believe that the consumer could bounce back in a second quarter as well. The consumer held back in Q1. So I think there are some better-than-expected GDP figures we could still get, despite the fact that net trade will be a drag potentially in the following quarter, that inventories potentially will be a drag in the following quarter. I thought what was interesting to me was we consumed ourselves with the GDP on Friday, what the bond market was really trading on was the inflation figure. The inflation the figure, GDP report. The inflation yeah. figure was softer than expected. And I just wonder, Mark, to what degree that is what is really shaping things in the bond market, particularly at the front end and around these calls still for a rate cut from the Fed. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people are focusing on. They're looking at the low inflation numbers and they're talking about a repeat of the Fed taking like a preemptive action uh, to uh, in the middle of a, a relatively healthy growth, firm stock market like they did in the late 90s. And I think that they, people are looking at this, but I'm yeah, just but not convinced that that's going to be the case. John, to your point, Nominal GDP was 3.8%. There was no politician breathing where that's acceptable. I mean, none, zero. I mean, there's just, just no other way to put it as well. So how is this distilled? To sum up, Mark Chandler, how is this distilled Wednesday by the Fed? Is this like a, what we used to call it, a dead meeting? Remember pre-press conferences? We well, he's tried to make sure meeting, that there meeting. is a live meeting every meeting yeah. now. But is it a dead yeah. meeting even though we're alive? Wait, it sounds like Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> no, here's what I think. I think that in March, the Federal Reserve, I think the Federal Reserve overreacted to, to things that we were looking at. Back in January and February, it looked like the U.S. economy stagnated. So they say in the March FOMC meeting that the U.S. economy looks like it pulled back. Yeah. And now I think they have to revise that. But I think that uh, they do it in a way that, uh, that slowly recognizes that a lot of these cross currents have eased and the biggest threat to the u.s economy now the federal reserve will say will be overseas will be uncertainty about trade will be about brexit it's not going to be so much about the domestic dynamics yeah well mark Chandler, thank you so much great to see you mark Catherine Young is out of Australia, uh, working with Fidelity, thinking very hard and coming to us from our Queen Victoria Street studios today. Catherine, uh, if I look at your recent real focus on belt and road, let's just start with the real definition. What's the actual Catherine Young definition of what belt and road is? So the Belt Road Initiative is to reconstruct the Silk Road route and essentially it's Xi Jinping's uh, policy in terms of increasing China's soft power status globally. It's very near to its heart. It's definitely up there in terms of policies and the policy agenda for China going forward. The rap is they're using debt financing and when well-intentioned people, that's what we're assuming, can't pay the bill, China ends up with equity or ownership interest in some of these belt and road properties. Is that true? Is that valid? 
there has been a lot of criticism. And in fact, last year, when we saw the new leadership in Malaysia getting sworn in, they actually went back to the drawing board and went to Beijing, cancelled all the Belt Road initiatives in terms of the train system, have subsequently, though, readdressed the the projects and and undertaken it, albeit at a much lower cost. And so what we are seeing now is Xi Jinping really pledging to have a much more open approach and to really focus on this issue of how much debt is too much debt, especially for the emerging or frontier economies. Catherine, it was interesting that the president used his speech at the second Bowden Road Forum to set out a framework that I think was to attract the president of the United States more than it was to the leaders he was actually speaking to. Uh, More specifically, just protecting intellectual property, Catherine. What did you think of that speech? There were definitely a lot of hints there in regards to not just the Belt Road Initiative, but as you as you rightly pointed out, the ongoing trade discussions with the United States. So he did speak about IP protection. He spoke about, generally speaking, more transparency, easing the barriers in terms of customs and imports. So he used this as definitely a platform to get his message across. When we look at what China is trying to achieve, though, and you do all these you know, key searches in terms of just high-frequency words, it's about stabilization of growth. And again, you're hearing more and more about the transparency, the opening up, and doing deals bilaterally, not just with the US, but with all economies. So talks resume tomorrow between Secretary Mnuchin, uh, Trade Representative Lighthizer meeting with the Chinese in Beijing. Catherine, how hopeful are you that we are in the end game, that we can achieve something and what that something is in the next couple of weeks? I don't know. Tariff-wise, we are likely to see some resolution. This really has been an overhang for the markets or for sentiment over the past year. But just because we see a resolution tariff-wise doesn't mean that that's the end of the situation. And you're probably going to see this toing and froing between these two economies going forward because they're competing in the same high-end manufacturing space, whether it's 5G or aeronautical, etc. To be clear, Catherine, they're doing this ex-World Bank and IMF, ex multilateral institution, this is a go-it-alone China strategy? Yes, very much by funded with the Asian Development Bank, which was pretty much established by China. And again, you know, when you look at the rationale, it, it really is about uh, increasing soft power status. Are they? It is across the globe in terms of, yeah, it, they are. They are, definitely. And for them to once again become the superpower, which is what they want to do by 2049, I mean, it's all sort of yeah. spoken out and measured out, they have to initiate what the U.S. is calling the Marshall Plan. Is it okay? I like that emotion. Is it a Marshall Plan for Beijing? To a degree, but it's not just this policy. It's also the Made in 2025 strategy. So this is basically Chinese manufacturers climbing up the value chain. If you are to become the world economy or the the leader of the world economies, then you can't just be the world's largest toy manufacturer. And so there's a lot going on policy-wise. And don't forget, the biggest risk for China is still actually domestic issues. So ensuring that domestically sentiment is going to be revived after last year. Uh, Captain Yang, too Captain, short. Thank, thank you. you so much. Really, really good. Fidelity Worldwide. Uh, and, and with a huge academic uh, background out of Australia looking at Southern Asia uh, as well. There were elections in Spain. And you'd say, well, okay, big deal. There's elections in Spain, except there were elections in Hungary. There were elections in Poland. There were indeed various and sundry elections, including, I think, local elections this Thursday in the United Kingdom. Alistair Newton has been a student of this 
for a long time with Avalon Business Advisory and joins us this morning on Spain. Alistair, you've really diced into the new conservative movement in Spain. How is it associated with Franco of another time and place? I think not particularly, to be quite honest. If we look at Vox, the populist nationalist party to which you're referring, uh, which performed very well in this election, this is the first time they've actually got over one percentage point. They've got 10.3. In a general election. Yeah, Yeah, precisely. Very good indeed uh, from their perspective. It actually bears more relationship to the um, conservative parties in, in government in Poland and Hungary Uh, than it does to, say, Marine Le Pen's uh, party in France. Um, So it's sort of populist, nationalist, it's anti-immigration, but it is pro-EU largely, which is one of the more interesting uh, characteristics of it. Eurosceptic, but not anti-European. What is their potential vote? I mean, I looked carefully, folks. I believe there's five major parties. The top vote was 20-some percent, and then down from there. It's nothing like in the United States. But, Alistair, what is the potential of the anti-immigration vote? Is it 15%? Is it 20%? Do you have a number on that? Well, it would be very foolhardy to come up with a firm statistic, given the massive increase in boxers' vote over the course of the last five months since the regional elections in Andalusia, where they performed at a similar level. That was a big breakthrough moment for them. But I would suggest that perhaps the best example we could look at tentatively and provisionally would be the trajectory of Alternativa für Deutschland in Germany, a similar sort of party, but more right-wing in the traditional sense, more anti-immigration, more anti-EU, and they've plateaued at roughly 15.15%. Now, let's also keep in mind, though, that Vox has benefited from the collapse in support for the main right of centre party, as well as Partido Popular, which has alternated in government with the socialist PSOE ever since the end of the Franco era. So there probably is an element of the vote for Vox yesterday, which is a protest vote, uh, rather than a vote for Vox per se. Let's talk about what can be achieved in Spain with the government we're set to get. The socialist Pedro Sanchez set to return as prime minister. He's going to need the help of left-leaning allies. He's most likely going to need the help also, perhaps, from Catalan separatists as well to govern. What can they actually achieve, Alistair? Well, I think, first of all, we need to see what the exact makeup of the government is going to be. Clearly, uh, Pedro Sanchez could, and suggested this morning he would, Uh, decide to try to govern with a minority government again, as he did successfully for eight months until the Catalonians pulled the rug on him, precipitating this general election. That would give him some additional flexibility in principle because he would not be in a coalition with Podemos, who would act as a significant break on structural reforms which Spain still needs and probably roll back some of the reforms which we've already seen. He would better turn rightwards towards Rui de Danos, which is basically pro-economic reform, if he's in right. a minority government. However, we're in for a protracted negotiation before we see that. Elsa Newton, very quickly, or one final question. What can Italy learn from Spain? Is, is it fair to say Italy needs to learn the stability or the mix, the cultural mix of Spain? Is that, is that true? 
Well, the first thing that Italy needs to learn from Spain is actually how to do structural reform, because the Spanish story since the collapse of Lehman Brothers has been one of quite a lot of really quite successful structural reforms, which have boosted Spanish GDP growth to around about 25 to 3% on average for the past few years. Italy is woefully below that, largely because no Italian government for many, many years has seriously gripped the structural reform metal. So I would say the first thing Italy needs to do is to look at the economic side rather than the political side. Now, thank you so much, Alistair. Greatly appreciate it. Alistair Newton uh, with us today uh, on the Spanish elections. Karen, thanks so much. One thing is certain, measles is front and center. And all that can be said about this is maybe this isn't the interview of the week or the year. It's the interview of your children's uh, futures. There was a pixie dust in the air of virology and microbiology through the 70s and 80s, which centered on a gentleman named Baltimore at Rockefeller University. Peter Hotez was advantaged by Rockefeller University, his PhD there in biochemistry. He has a beyond distinguished career in all of these issues of the moment in these questions, and we're thrilled from Baylor University, Peter Hotez, uh, this morning. Thanks Peter, for having me back, Tom. Peter, it's great to have you on under these dire circumstances. On November 12th of 2002, measles was eradicated. How did it come back if it was eradicated? Well, it came back because of a self-inflicted wound. Uh, we let our guard down. We allowed a anti-vaccine movement to ascend from a fringe group into its own media empire, armed with a series of political action committees, and they're operating throughout the United States. As a result, we've had local declines in vaccine coverage in multiple uh, areas. We've identified at least 15 urban hotspots where kids aren't getting vaccinated. And you usually see measles as the first breakthrough infection, and that's because it's the most highly contagious of all of them. So on average, if a single individual gets measles, 12 to 18 others will become infected, and typically those would be infants under the age of 12 months, not yet, not old enough to get vaccinated, and they're the ones who wind up hospitalized with me right. pneumonia and worse. So, I, 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 re I remember the pink drops in my mouth in first grade and the mother's crying over the miracle of, of, of moving on from polio. Why do we fear measles? I had measles and I got better. It was no big deal. Why is measles a big deal for those infants? Well, for many, it, it's okay, but what happens is uh, when, when you get measles, up to one in four can be hospitalized, and the, one, the two things you worry about are what's called measles pneumonia, which is what kills you, and uh, measles encephalitis, which can cause deafness and permanent neurologic injury. So people forget yeah. that up to a couple of decades ago, <clears throat> measles was the single leading killer of children globally. It's a bad actor. What is the mechanism of society and culture and politics to get us back to November 11th of 2002? So that's a great question, and I've identified a three-part plan. So the, the first part is we have to think about how we're going to dismantle this media juggernaut, this media empire. The anti-vaccine movement owns the Internet now with almost 500 anti-vaccine websites. They've weaponized Amazon. Amazon is now the 
single largest promoter of phony anti-vaccine books. So what do you want Jeff Bezos to do? I want him to shut down those uh, phony anti-vaccine books. He's he has to stop promoting them, uh, just like any bookstore can, has a right to choose which books they're not going to promote. He needs to do the same, and the same with uh, uh, same with Facebook mm-hmm. as well. Shut down those anti-vaccine websites. But then there's a political arm to this as well. What happens now? We've got uh, in a couple of dozen states, we allow uh, non-medical vaccine exemptions. We have to close those. So we have to do yeah. what's been done in California and Mississippi mm-hmm. and West Virginia. Say if you want to send your kid to public school, you have to have your child vaccinated. And lastly, we need to rebuild that pro-vaccine advocacy piece to this. We're not hearing from our elected leaders. We're not hearing from our public health federal agencies. We heard from the President of the United States a few days ago. I mean, I guess he can be more vocal about it, but certainly he has stepped up. What do you need to see from Congress? What we need to see from Congress is to enact that that three-part that three-part scheme. Uh, they need to be. There right, were congressional right, hearings right. two months ago, but so far there's just been optics. No, no real, no real tangible actions. Peter Hotez with us, folks. Uh, dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine. This at Baylor's College of Medicine. Dr. Hotez, at the beginning of the interview, you talked about how measles is first. This goes back, and folks, um, I had the honor of studying under Egon Stark um, on Pseudomonas aeruginosa uh, anaerobic bacteria and a whole hospital staphylococcus thing as well but we go on from measles to other things what are the other things that are there if a select group of people are anti-vaccine well so we're seeing sort of three battleground vaccines that the anti-vaccine lobby has singled out so measles is one of them yeah. and that's done as the measles most rubella vaccine the other one's the flu vaccine so we had 150 unvaccinated children die in America last year because they weren't vaccinated despite recommendations. So you're getting a lot of phony information about flu. And then there's the uh, HPV vaccine, the papillomavirus vaccine for cervical cancer. We've got a whole generation of girls and women not getting vaccinated, and therefore we're condemning them to uh, suffering from right. cervical cancer. Totally unnecessary. The fear here, almost Camus-like, is we go back to diseases of our great-grandparents and our great-great-grandparents. Can we get back to horrific immediate death like typhoid and other microbial diseases? Well, the, the good news is that our society has advanced in terms of uh, levels of sanitation and reductions in poverty, but we still have a lot of pockets of poverty and still a lot of neglected diseases in this country. And if we stop vaccinating, a number of them will come back. So we've allowed ourselves to be complacent. We've allowed this phony misinformation campaign to become dominant on yeah. the Internet right now. And, and, and we, need to, we need to stop it. We need to say we're not going to do this well, anymore. What is their case on autism because you know peter hotes can trot out the math but help us with the the research base that says no it doesn't lead to autism i mean what is the clarity of the research there so thanks for for asking that i just wrote a new book because i'm not only a vaccine scientist and a pediatrician but i also have an adult daughter with autism and intellectual disabilities and just wrote this book called vaccines did not cause rachel's autism which in a very straightforward way 
provides the evidence and studies of over a million children showing there's no absolutely no link between any vaccine and autism. And the anti-vaxxers keep moving the goalposts. First, they said it was the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Then Bobby Kennedy came along and said, no, no, we didn't mean MMR. We meant thimerosal that used to be in vaccines. And then it was spacing well, vaccines close together. It was aluminum. <clears throat> so you play this kind of pyrrhic game of uh, vaccine whack-a-mole. And then, I, and then I go into detail explaining what autism is and how uh, we have at least 99 genes identified uh, uh, right. as the cause of autism. And it's all involved okay. in early fetal brain development well before kids ever see vaccines. Peter, you're in the heart of this. One final question. When you run into people that are anti-vaxxers in that, are they just anti-science? Are they, are they almost anti-deductive medicine and anti-everything we did from, you know, Newton onwards? Are they just anti-rational thought? Well, they fall into two groups, I find. I mean, the majority of parents, mothers, are not deeply dug in. They've just been so overwhelmed with misinformation that they're scared. And so you need to sit down with them and explain the information, and they'll vaccinate their child. Then there's another small percentage, and I don't know what the real number is, whether it's 10, 15 percent, who are deeply dug in and they believe conspiracy theories. Those individuals are hard to reach, and for that we have legislation. We have to, we have to close those non-vaccine exemptions. Where are we on measles? Let's go back to the immediate now. We're going into May. Is measles a summer season thing? Is it an autumnal thing? What do we expect the next number of weeks, Dr. Hotez? Well, we have, we have two opposing forces, a good news, bad news story. The good news is historically when we've had measles epidemics pre-2002, as you point out, in America, um, they tended to peak in the spring and then reduce dramatically decline as we reach the warmer summer months. So, so maybe there's some hope. The bad news is that as bad as things are in America, things are even worse in Europe. So uh, Europe's a train wreck right now, especially in Italy and France Mm -hmm. and Greece. So with all that summer European travel, we're going to be reintroducing measles into the United States from Europe. And since we have that big cohort of unvaccinated kids, um, there's risks that this could still be ongoing. So so we'll just have to see which force plays out. Peter Otis, thank you so much for the magical path. Uh, in the study of microbiology and virology out of Yale Rockefeller University and Weill Cornell Medical College, Peter Otez of Baylor uh, University. Uh, Craig Moffat with us right now. Moffat Nathanson, uh, he and Michael Nathanson just do a spectacular job with all this modern stuff we're dealing with. Um, and, and Craig, of course, knows we're in massive spoiler alert uh, right now on Game of Thrones and the Avengers as well. So, Craig, I want to go right to your research report. And as usual, you have a sentence that would surprise. It's a good time to be cable. Discuss that. Well, hey, hey, Tom, how are you? You know, too many people still confuse cable uh, companies with media companies. And look, cable companies are not media companies. Cable companies are infrastructure providers. And while all of this stuff is swirling around about where are you going to get your video and uh, and is it going to be packaged this way or that way? Is it going to be aggregated by this company or that company? 
all of that misses the broader point that it still has to travel over physical infrastructure and the cable operators have the best infrastructure. And, and that's what you're seeing right now yeah. for the cable companies and in the cable stocks, by the way, which have started the year very strong because people, I think, are starting yeah. to get more comfortable with the idea that, that cable infrastructure still wins. Paul Sweeney, Comcast, 10-year track record. 20.2%. Cable's dead. Uh, the Brian Roberts and that team. 20.2%. Yeah. yeah. They've done just a, a phenomenal job managing their capital structure and their strategy. So, Craig, spending a couple of minutes on Comcast, you know, we think about just over the last couple of years how much the landscape has changed with AT&T buying Time Warner and, you know, Disney doubling down on content with 21st Century Fox. Um, do you think Comcast has the assets it needs now to compete going over the next five years or so? Well, it's a really interesting question because um, the you know Comcast used to be a cable company. Comcast is not a cable company anymore. The cable side of its business um, is is doing very well, as I just talked about. But that's only half of the business. And on the other side of the business, it perhaps is a bit more challenging to figure out whether they have the right set of assets. Um, the the path that Disney laid out a couple of weeks ago now. Um, in their direct-to-consumer strategy. I think that the takeaway that almost everyone had after listening to Disney's, what I refer to in the report as the sort of the shock and awe analyst day, was that nobody else can can do the same strategy as, as Disney because nobody else is Disney. Nobody else has the Avengers. Nobody else has the the princesses and nobody else has Star Wars and nobody else has the collection of assets that Disney has. And so everyone is struggling with how do you respond to a future where Disney, because of their unique set of assets, can go direct to the consumer in a very powerful way, but arguably no one else can can mimic that strategy. What's left for everyone else? And it's a real question for Comcast. When you think about Brian Roberts over the year, he really has been aggressive in many and deals he's done and on deals he's missed. I mean, we all remember a long time ago, he made a move on the Walt Disney Company itself. What moves do you think that Brian Roberts and the board has to the extent that it wants to be one of those big, big global players going forward? Well, it's a good question. The, the, the last big acquisition, Sky, gives them a foothold in, in Europe and the rest of the world. But they haven't really articulated the strategy that they're going to pursue and what it is they want to do with it. They've made a case that it's, that it's a good business. Um, I think what investors have struggled with is even if you do think it's a good business, it's hard to argue that Comcast didn't significantly overpay for it. And so you've got to have some vision for how do you put all these yeah. pieces together into something that's special? And frankly, I, I'm, I'm a little puzzled with that. I, I struggle with the non-cable side of the Comcast business. Craig Moffat, you've been really good on AT&T. I'm going to say collegially it's been a train wreck. Maybe that's a little bit too harsh as well. What's the mandate for the leadership right now? Well, it's, AT&T has got um, – even their problems have problems, and – um, and it's it, it's going to be a struggle to put the pieces together that they've put that, that they've assembled um, Warner Media and Directv and the the wireless and and wireline telecom businesses together in uh, in a strategically coherent way. And while you're doing that, not to damage the assets you just bought. You know, I think one of the real questions facing AT&T with Warner Media and, um, and, and the assets that they bought from Time Warner 
is, sure, it's clear that you need to do something strategically to knit all those pieces together. But how do you do that without causing an exodus of talent that damages the asset so much that that you're knitting together just kind of hollow shells of what these companies used to be. And you've, you've really seen some troubling signs of some important talent leaving those businesses already. Oh, we've talked about this. What are yours? I mean, I, I, folks, I, I'm so privileged to do this. I've got three giants I'm talking to. Michael Nathanson and with us today, Craig Moffat of Moffat Nathanson, and a guy named Paul Sweeney as well. To both of you, Paul Sweeney and to Craig Moffat, it's a 6% dividend. It's a stock. To an amateur like me, that's illogical. Paul, when do they cut the dividend? Uh, yeah, I'll defer that one to Craig, but I'll tell you the issue for that Craig raised uh, very well with this big acquisition of Time Warner is the talent. Tom and I were talking earlier. I mean, how do you keep the talent? Well, you pay them. But Craig, I mean, we've seen some of the uh, the heads of Turner, the heads of HBO, the crown jewels walk out the door. That really has to be concerning, doesn't it? Sure does. Sure does. And 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 Tom, you're exactly right. Look, the reason the dividend yield is so high is because people just don't believe it's sustainable. Um, and so there is, for the first time in AT&T, um, a real sense that this is now a risky proposition. Um, you know, remember, all of us grew up in an age where AT&T was the safest of the blue chips. Uh, yeah. And you bought it as a defensive stock. I think it was really interesting during the fourth quarter when the market was starting to discount recession risk, um, that AT&T started to trade as a cyclical for the first time yeah. ever. It was up on up days and down on down days, which is sounds the way most stocks right. trade, but the opposite of the way AT&T has historically traded. Is mis- is in mis- that sense, I think, I was going to say, I think people have figured it out right, that if, if this company hits a recession before they have meaningfully delevered the balance sheet, they're in real yeah. trouble. Um, and and that's what people are struggling with. Is Mr. Stevenson's tenure at threat? I mean, he's been there for eleven years, nine years, ten years. Is this is this it? Like deliver now or? It's that's certainly not a message that I've heard from from any source. So I would be speculating. Okay. Um, but I, it's it's fair to say that investors are frustrated with the performance of AT and T shares, which have have radically underperformed the market over virtually any time period for the last okay. one, three, five, ten years. Now, Craig, I'll say it on air so all our listeners worldwide know we would kill to get you and Michael Nathanson and uh, Moffat Nathanson in our studio together as we can arrange that. You, you, The two of you and Paul Sweeney, that would be lights out on media. Craig Moffat is with Moffat Nathanson. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.